This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin with breaking news. The Dow Jones about to close in just a moment, plummeting more than 1,800 points today. Let's get right to CNN's Allison Kozak. Allison, this seems to be a dramatic end to stocks rallying in recent weeks. What's responsible for what happened today? Jake, I think that investors woke up this morning and that the
In a pre-recorded address to graduates, Milley said he was angry about the murder of George Floyd and offered this praise for peaceful protesters. Peaceful protest means that American freedom is working. The apology capped off an extraordinary week showcasing a deep divide between the president and the Pentagon. I do not support invoking the Insurrection Act. His current defense secretary pushed back on his demand to use active duty troops to crack down on protest. His former defense secretary condemned him in a rare statement. And Colin Powell, the first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs, accused Trump of drifting away from the Constitution. That divide was deepened yesterday when Trump flatly rejected a suggestion under consideration at the Pentagon to rename military bases that are named for Confederate leaders. The president will not stand for that. These names are associated with the heroes within them, not the name on the fort. Sources say the president remains convinced that these racially tinged culture wars that he immersed himself in in 2016 remain a winning strategy. And his latest salvo comes as he's preparing a return to the campaign trail. Do we have a great time at a Trump rally? Do we have a the date and location of his first rally since he suspended them amid the coronavirus is coming under scrutiny. Trump will be in Tulsa next Friday on Juneteenth, the annual holiday commemorating the end of slavery. It's the site of a race massacre 99 years ago when a white mob killed hundreds of black citizens and was recently portrayed in the beginning of the popular HBO show, The Watchmen. Now, Jake, the president just landed in Dallas, and he's supposed to have this roundtable that the White House has described as focusing on justice disparities. But we are learning that three key law enforcement officials in the area have not been invited. That's the Dallas police chief, the sheriff, and the district attorney. Though the White House did say they did invite some law enforcement officials, including the police chief of a nearby town, Glen Heights, which has about 15,000 people. They invited the state attorney general, and they also invited some police union chiefs as well. But those three officials will not be there when the president does uh, make his remarks or host this roundtable that the White House has been describing. Those three individuals were not invited by the White House to this event with law enforcement in Dallas. Is that that's what you're saying, Caitlin? Yes. Let's put that's the pictures we, up again if we can. Yes. The Dal a Dal local Dallas outlet first reported this. CNN, our team on the ground, has confirmed that, that the police chief the sheriff uh, as well, and the Dallas County District Attorney have all not been invited to this event that the president is holding in Dallas, where he's expected to make remarks and make some kind of news, according to the White House, but they have not been invited to that. All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you so much for that reporting. Appreciate it. Joining me now, retired Major General Dana Pittard, a two-star general who commanded troops uh, in Iraq. Uh, general, I, I want to start with your reaction to what we heard from Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley today, coming out publicly and saying it was a mistake for him to have participated uh, in the photo op and the clearing of the, of the park uh, last week. Really remarkable. I've never seen anything like it. What are your thoughts, sir? Well, good evening, Jake. Uh, General, I, I applaud General Mark Milley. In fact, I've known him for years, and uh, that's the Mark Milley that I know. Uh, he has admitted a mistake. He's taken ownership of, ownership of it, responsibility, and he's moving forward. So, I, it's in fact, it's refreshing. Interesting. Uh, General, an, another issue that we might hear President Trump discuss today, we're not sure, um, is the debate uh, over removing the names of Confederate generals uh, from military bases named after them. Um, you've said that you've known for decades that it's an insult 
to African-American soldiers for these bases to carry these names of, I mean, let's face it, these were, these were traitors. So what is your response when you hear President Trump's response that under no circumstances will he consider renaming them, even though the Pentagon apparently wants to start a, a bipartisan conversation about it? Yeah, I was disappointed uh, when I, I saw the, the president's tweet. And I don't know if, it's, if he's not getting good advice from his advisors or he's just not listening. Uh, the bottom line is those bases, they need to be renamed. Uh, I applaud the Marine Corps for moving forward with moving all uh, Confederate paraphernalia from all Marine Corps bases as well as naval bases. And the Army needs to do the same thing. But there are 10 installations in the Army that still are named after Confederate generals who betrayed our nation. They need to be renamed. You've said that the military is no more racist than the society it protects. And, but you've also talked about your personal encounters with racism in the ranks, from uh, being denied command of an armored cavalry troop unit by a racist commander uh, in the 80s, to ethnic slurs said to you, uh, to a commander having a, a portrait of a Klan founder and Confederate general in his living room. Um, I don't know if you think there's systemic racism in the military or if it's just there are racist jerks in every big organization. But either way, what's the solution, do you think? Sure. I mean, there is a legacy of systemic racism, uh, both in the military, but in society in general. And I'll tell you, uh, the Army in particular has made great strides. You know, right now there are, there are 43, that I, from my count, 43 active duty uh, African-American general officers in, in the Army. If you, if you look at that, uh, that's pretty high compared to uh, demographics in society. I, I wish the corporate world uh, was as progressive as the Army uh, in that regard. And what the Army started to do, and it's, it's not perfect, there's a, uh, there's a lot of room for improvement and there's much more that needs to be done, but they listened. And then they had mechanisms for reporting uh, equal opportunity violations. Uh, so things are moving in the right direction. Uh, Obviously not fast enough for, for so many of us, but they're moving in the right direction. And society in general can learn from what the Army and other places in the U.S. military have done. All right, General, thank you so much. It's been an honor to have you. And you can read more from the General. Uh, he has a great new book out called Hunting the Caliphate, Major General Dana Pittard. Thank you so much. And thank you, of course, uh, for your service. Coming up, oh, oh hold on thank one you, second. Jake. Joining me now, I want to bring in a former federal prosecutor and CNN senior legal analyst, uh, Laura Coates. Uh, Laura, let's talk about uh, what the president's up to today. He's largely avoided answering questions from reporters over the last week and a half. Um, he's finally about to sit down and talk about race in Texas, although you saw some, you saw some notable people who were not invited uh, to this roundtable. But he has been ambiguous about what policing reforms he might support. Um, there hasn't been any big speech on unity, uh, and he has said that he won't even consider what the Pentagon wants, which is a conversation about renaming these military bases named after Confederate generals. What's your take on all this? Why is he handling it this way? I think what you described in an umbrella term would be leadership and talking about the things the American people would require of somebody who's the head of the very branch of government that's in charge of enforcing the laws. And it's very, very critical that people hear not only from the president of the United States, but also have some level of faith in the process that he will not do things that will undermine what the other branches of government have been talking about. The Supreme Court in talking about reassessing qualified immunity, legislative branch talking about police reform on 
a wider scale, even corporate America, looking at issues of how they can either remove technology that has algorithms that are biased, like the recognition software, or even having a say in Georgia with companies saying we want hate crime legislation there because of Ahmaud Arbery and other people. The president's silence on these issues really leaves a void and really makes people think to themselves, well, is this so-called law and order president actually interested in restoring law and order and being in line with the police unions who oftentimes say they too want to see reform that where they're not judged by the worst among them and they can actually perform the functions that we want them to perform. But you know, what's really important is who is invited and who's not invited. And unless the president is prepared to have a holistic and comprehensive discussion with all of the agents of change and the key players, it will all fall upon deaf ears. And that's not a good sign for somebody who leads the executive branch of government. What do you need to see or hear from the president today uh, to show that his administration is serious about addressing these, these problems head on? You're a former prosecutor. In addition, you're from uh, Minneapolis, not far uh, from where uh, Mr. Floyd was killed. What, what do you want him to say? Well, there has to be first an acknowledgement that the statements by his own attorney general that there is no systemic bias or discrimination in America as relates to the criminal justice system is just simply belied by the facts that there needs to be greater transparency and accountability contrary to what his own national security advisor has said. It doesn't take much to admit the obvious, particularly, Jake, when there are laws that are have enough foresight to say we anticipate and try to rectify abuses of power, like color of law. Et cetera. So we need to hear an acknowledgement and then some actual productive steps to correct the issues. All right, Laura Coates, thank you so much. We always appreciate your voice. In the wake of this national conversation about race and racism, President Trump will restart his campaign rallies in a city that has a horrific racist past and where a police major is currently under fire for racist comments. That's ahead. And Next, one major city delaying the next phase of reopening as coronavirus cases spike across the United States. Stay with us. Our health lead now, Nashville, is delaying the next phase of reopening due to the increased spread of coronavirus in that city. This comes as at least a dozen states in the U.S. are battling major spikes in new infections and in hospitalizations, though some governors seem uninclined to reinstitute restrictions. More than 113,000 people have lost their lives here in the U.S. because of COVID-19. And as CNN's Erica Hill reports for us now, a dire new forecast is predicting it's only going to get worse. As Americans embrace summer, health experts are focused on disturbing new data trends. Somehow as a country, we have decided that hundreds of thousands of Americans dying from this virus is OK. And that is unbelievable to me. New modeling forecasts nearly 170,000 COVID-19 related deaths in the U.S. by October 1st. In Arizona, nearly 80 percent of the state's ICU beds are now in use. It's one of at least a dozen states seeing a spike in coronavirus related hospitalizations. I think that a critical shortage of ICU beds is absolutely the nightmare scenario. That was the whole reason we were emphasizing about flattening the curve. In some of the first states to reopen, the curve is not flattening. Florida is still posting more than 1,000 new cases a day. In South Carolina, daily counts have been rising over the past two weeks. I am um, more concerned about COVID-19 in South Carolina than I have ever been before.
Much of the West and South also reporting an uptick. I want COVID-19 to be over. But the data suggests otherwise. Nashville now delaying its next phase of reopening in response to a rise in new cases. One of the first big cities to change course. While in Iowa, the iconic state fair has been postponed for the first time since World War II. No butter cows and no campaigning. New research from the UK boosting the case for wearing a mask, noting widespread use could help avoid a second wave. And it's consistent with several other studies, which essentially show that if you've got the majority of people wearing masks, the virus really has no place to go. And in Chicago, a medical first, a successful double lung transplant for a woman in her 20s whose lungs were damaged by the virus. Yesterday, she smiled and told me just one sentence. She said, Doc, thank you for not giving up on me. As healthcare providers, there's nothing more gratifying to hear. This is why we do what we do. A bit of hope in uncertain times. Jake, in terms of that uncertainty, as you look around the country, we heard from the governor of Colorado today. Cases are steady in his state, he said, but he's starting to get concerned by what he's seeing in Utah and Arizona because there's so much travel between those three states. We also heard from some local officials in South Carolina, which, as you know, is really seeing an increase in cases there. Uh, local officials in Folly Beach, Myrtle Beach, and others say they are canceling July 4th celebrations, including fireworks, over concerns about the spread of the virus, Jake. All right, Erica Hill in New York, thank you so much. Joining us now, the former health commissioner of Texas and the current vice chancellor for health affairs and chief medical officer at the University of Texas System, Dr. David Lakey. Uh, Dr. Lakey, thanks so much for joining us. At least 12 states have seen an uptick in coronavirus hospitalization since Memorial Day. Why? Is it because of all the reopenings? Is it in Texas? Are people not adhering to wearing masks and social distancing guidelines? I think there's many factors involved in the increase. And in many ways, I think it was predictable. With the um, Memorial Day weekend, with the other, uh, the, the marches, et cetera, and with reopening, uh, we should assume that the number of cases will go up. Now, as they go up, we also need to continue to watch hospitalization numbers. And we, we actually have significant capacity in the state of Texas right now. But it is concerning that the, the numbers have gone up. We're now at uh, increase. We had 2,153 patients in Texas hospitals as of this morning. And so that's that's significantly higher than it has been in the last week or so. So what would you say to Governor Abbott or to you or to your fellow Texans uh, about what they need to do to prevent hospitalizations uh, and sickness and, and death? I think there's personal responsibility that, that we need to do. Uh, I think um, I, I go out, I, I do things, but I, I'm careful. I, I wear a mask when I'm out in public. Um, I wash my hands. Uh, if I'm sick, I'm not gonna go into work. I'm not gonna go out. And so these basic public health principles, uh, we need to remember them. Uh, the virus is out there in our community. And if we aren't vigilant, if we're not prudent, um, we shouldn't assume that we're not going to get infected with this virus. And so yeah, until we get a vaccine, uh, these public health measures that we've used for a century are, are really the cornerstone of preventing the spread of this virus in our communities. So you were the health commissioner for Texas during the Ebola crisis. Uh, and a man 
died in Texas of Ebola after traveling to, to West Africa. Obviously, Ebola and coronavirus are very different. Ebola is deadlier in a lot of ways, uh, and coronavirus uh, is more contagious, uh, more infectious. Um, do you think Texas has been handling this spread, this threat, properly? I think they're doing a good job. I, I think, um, you know, any of these events, you, you need to be careful. You need to be prudent. Uh, I, I think we, you know, so far, Texas has been relatively spared. Uh, our numbers are lower than the national average. For, I think that's a variety. There's a variety of reasons. We, early on, we also made sure that we had hospital capacity. We decreased the number of people in hospitals by stopping elective surgeries early on and, and waited till we had the right amount of PPE, personal protective equipment, before opening up. Uh, but I do think there comes a point where you have to take those steps in opening business back up. Uh, that there are tremendous consequences if you have this prolonged lockdown, and not only economic and, and poverty, but the mental health challenges, substance abuse challenges, domestic violence, child abuse. There's a variety of you know, chronic diseases uh, if people can't get the medical care that they need. And so you can't do full lockdown and you can't do, we, we can't just open things wide open right now. And so that, that middle ground of doing prudent steps to open up business, but, but also to, to wear the mask, take care of the hand hygiene, um, and, and really important is to protect older individuals, protecting the nursing homes so we don't introduce the virus into the vulnerable populations. It's, it's really, really important. All right, Dr. David Lakey, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time and expertise. A top Democrat is calling it a welcome home party for white supremacists. Up next, we're going to dig deeper into the Trump campaign's decision to restart President Trump's election rallies on Juneteenth in a city with a devastating racist history. Stay with us. In our national lead today, next Friday, Juneteenth, a day that commemorates the end of slavery in the United States, President Trump is restarting his campaign rallies. He'll do so in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is home of one of the bloodiest massacres of black Americans in American history. 1921, after a young black man was accused of assaulting a young white woman, white Tulsans went on a rampage and slaughtered hundreds of innocent blacks. Historians estimate about 300 people were killed, mostly blacks at the hands of white men and white police. It's called by some the 1920 Tulsa Race Massacre, and it destroyed what was known then as Black Wall Street, a thriving area in Tulsa's Greenwood District. Black-owned businesses, shops, theaters, doctor's offices. Nearly 100 years later, it appears Tulsa is still struggling with some issues of race. There's new body camera video showing two white police officers confronting two black teens for jaywalking last week. One of the teens gets arrested, the other handcuffed. Hands on. Hey, why are you why are you arresting him? Why are you putting handcuffs on? Because why are you putting handcuffs on my? Well, he, all he, he all he, anything on him, sir. All he was doing was jaywalking. We just want to talk with him. Does he have anything? Then he on had him, to act sir? a fool like that. On Monday, a white high-ranking Tulsa police officer on a podcast said, attempting to make an argument of some sort that there are not racial inequities in law enforcement that according to his research, police should actually be shooting black people more often than they do. Sir says we're shooting African-Americans about 24% less than we probably ought to be based on the crimes being committed. 
Today, Major Yates is claiming that he was misquoted and says he prefaced his statement with attribution to research. I want to bring in Carlos Hill, uh, Department Chair of African and African American Studies at the University of Oklahoma. He's also on the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission. Uh, Professor, thanks so much for joining us. President Trump's campaign manager says, quote, as the party of Lincoln, Republicans are proud of what Juneteenth represents and the Emancipation Proclamation. President Trump has a solid record of success for black Americans. What's your reaction to President Trump restarting his rallies on Juneteenth in Tulsa? Uh, thank you for so much for having me on the show, Jake. I really appreciate it. I love your show and I follow it all the time. But I would say that I hope that President Trump is intending to unite the country and instead of divide the country. He has an opportunity in coming to Tulsa, the site of the Tulsa race massacre that you mentioned earlier, to bring the country together and actually to raise awareness around the race massacre that has too long uh, been a history that has been shrouded in mystery. And so I hope that his visit to Tulsa is about paying homage to the victims and survivors of the race massacre uh, that died 99 years ago, and as well as paying homage to the memory and the life and legacy of George Floyd. I hope that's what he's coming to Tulsa for. When asked uh, why this was happening next Friday, the White House Press Secretary uh, Kayleigh McEnany today pointing to the president's relationship uh, with black Americans. Uh, Let's roll that tape. The African-American community is very near and dear to his heart. He's working on rectifying injustices, injustices that go back to the very beginning of this country's history. In your opinion, if you're comfortable giving it, um, do you think the president is the right messenger for the message on race, racism, what happened in Tulsa and what happened to George Floyd Uh, This is a campaign rally, after all. He's not coming to Tulsa on the actual 99th anniversary, which was May 31st, June 1st. Um, This is a campaign rally in in Tulsa on Juneteenth. It's not a question of can he be, but should he be? He should be the messenger for bringing our country together. He should speak in ways that help us to understand this issue in ways that bring us together. I hope when President Trump comes to Tulsa, he will visit the Greenwood Cultural Center. He will visit the John Hope Franklin Center. He will visit Reconciliation Park. He will visit sites connected to the race massacre. He will talk to people like my dear friend, Tiffany Crutcher, who started the Terrence Crutcher Foundation to reform police, uh, police, to create police reform and law enforcement reform in this country, but specifically in Tulsa in honor of her brother, I hope he meets with those community leaders to make sure that his visit has the kinds of impacts that we hope it will have. Um, Former Democratic presidential candidate, uh, Senator Kamala Harris, um, said about this trip that President Trump is is making uh, to Tulsa on Juneteenth, quote, this isn't just a wink to white supremacists. He's throwing them a welcome home party. That's a a pretty strong charge. Um, Is it possible that some white supremacists will take it that way? It's possible, but this is the wrong community. I mean, Tulsa um, and the Greenwood District 
is one of the wealthiest black communities uh, in the country uh, in terms of 1921. But in 12 hours, that community was destroyed by a white mob. Uh, and the violence was aided and abetted by police and the National Guard. Um, nearly 200 businesses, and I want to emphasize this, nearly 200 businesses were destroyed and as many as 300 people lost their life. And I just, I just hope that President Trump's team um, will help him to understand that he needs to bear witness to this reality if he comes to Tulsa and, and hosts a rally. He needs to understand that Black Wall Street was past and present, a symbol of Black excellence, and that he should raise awareness about this history in the wake of George Floyd's murder. If he can do that, if he can muster the courage to do that, then I think many people like myself who's doubtful that the president um, can channel uh, the, the, the courage and the wherewithal to unite the country, we might think differently about his, his decision to host a campaign rally in Tulsa uh, on Juneteenth, which is a sacred moment for black Americans. All right, Professor Carlos Hill, thank you so much. We really appreciate your voice today. Thank you for having me, Jake. I appreciate you. It could be used as a treatment or even as a preventative measure for coronavirus. Details on new medications being tested now. That's next. More in our health lead, drug maker Regeneron, announcing human trials are underway for an antibody cocktail that may, may treat or prevent coronavirus. If the trials are successful, the company hopes that it could be available by the fall. Joining me now to discuss, CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen. So, Elizabeth, this cocktail will be tested in four populations. One, people who are hospitalized with the virus. Two, people who have symptoms of the disease but not hospitalized. Three, people who are healthy but at a high risk for infection for whatever reason. And four, healthy people who have come into close contact with a person who is sick. So explain more. What will the process be? So it's interesting that they're trying it in these groups because what this tells us, Jake, is they want to know, does this drug work in people who are very sick, so sick they're in the hospital or just somewhat ill? They have the virus, but they're at home. And this is the interesting part. Does it prevent infection? So, for example, let's give it to nurses in the ER. They have a high risk of running into someone with COVID. Will this work to prevent it? So this trial will be, these trials, I should say, will be both for people who are already infected as a treatment, but also as a prevention, almost in a way like a vaccine. So you're saying that, that it might help those with the virus in the hospital by helping them recover, uh, but healthy people who are at high risk, either because of their job or for whatever reason, it, it, they'll be looking to see if it actually uh, is prophylactic. It, it keeps them from getting it. Right, exactly. And that's what sort of sets this apart a bit from some other treatments. So they'll be giving it, let's say, for example, to healthcare workers or, for example, people who have a household contact. Let's say your spouse has been uh, infected with COVID-19. You're therefore at high risk of getting it. They want to see if we give this to you, will it prevent you from getting it? And theoretically, how quickly could it be manufactured and, and ready for mass distribution? 
Right. So, Jake, you and I have spent a lot of time talking about vaccines. Vaccines take months and months and months, if not years, to test out. With treatments, it's actually quite easier. Um, it's just a swifter process. So they've said that maybe by the fall, you know, everything is a big maybe. We don't know. But certainly getting a treatment on the market is a much faster process than getting a vaccine. Now, Moderna said today that they expect to begin phase three of their vaccine trial next month. 30,000 people would participate in that. How long before we'll know if it's effective, if it's an actual vaccine? Right. The hope is, is that we would know, let's say, by the fall sometimes, whether it's a safe and effective, effective vaccine. You then have to look through all that data and really make sure, you know, be sure about it. What Tony Fauci has been saying since January is we hope that we can have a vaccine within 12 to 18 months. That puts us at the very end of this year or the first half of the following year. All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. And the Sesame Street crew is back on CNN for a brand new family town hall about coronavirus and staying safe this summer. Tune in for the ABCs of COVID-19. That's Saturday morning at 10 Eastern, only on CNN. 80% of ICU beds occupied in Arizona with a huge surge in new cases and hospitalizations. We're going to go to the ground in Arizona next. Stay with us. Continuing in our health lead, 20 states are seeing an uptick in new coronavirus cases as the total number nationwide surpasses 2 million. Now, two of those states seeing rising numbers after reopening businesses weeks ago are Florida and Arizona. Let's start with CNN's Rosa Flores in Lake County, Florida, with the latest. In the past week or so, the number of daily cases in Florida have exceeded 1,000 multiple days in a row, according to data released by the state. Now, you could say that that's because they're doing more testing, posting 20, 30, up to 40,000 test results in one day. But if you look at the daily percentage of positive cases, you'll see that it's between 3 and 5 percent. Now, other states have increased testing and have seen their positive rates go up or down. Many experts warn a second wave of infections is ahead if states relax the rules too aggressively. As for hospital bed availability, about 25% of hospital beds are available in Florida. I'm Kyung Lan near Phoenix, Arizona, where the mayor of Phoenix says her city and her state is not recovering from COVID. She said, we reopened too much too early. Now, Arizona did reopen on May 15th. And if you look at this graph, these are the numbers of new cases in Arizona. The numbers have jumped dramatically in the last couple of weeks. The state set, announced more than 1,400 new cases just today. Now, with restaurants, bars and businesses all open, the state health department is asking hospitals in the state to activate their emergency plans with about 80 percent of ICU beds being used. Jake? All right, Kyung La and Rosa Flores, thank you to both of you. Coming up with calls for policing reform, Hollywood is reexamining everything from live PD to Paw Patrol. Stay with us. Breaking news out of Minnesota, Governor Tim Walls announcing he is endorsing a sweeping policing reform deal, saying he understands that Minnesotans are demanding real change. The deal includes legislation addressing police use of force, new models that provide alternatives to policing, and banning chokeholds. 
And the 17th straight day of protests around the country have started. On the left, you see these are live pictures right now from Dallas, near where President Trump is holding an event on race and policing on the right side of the TV, you see. Well, now we're not on the right side. On the other side, there were dozens of people in uh, Florida near Fort Lauderdale, Donia Beach, I believe it's called. And our pop culture lead today, after weeks of protests against police brutality, backlash is growing against Hollywood's glamorization of police. Hit shows such as Cops and Live PD were canceled this week. And as CNN's Tom Foreman reports, calls are even growing for the popular children's show Paw Patrol to be taken off the air. From the Law & Order franchise to NCIS to Blue Bloods, police dramas are iconic, hugely popular, and now under intense fire. From activists who say these shows far too readily portray cops as good and trustworthy while undermining real-life claims of systemic racism and abuse. These shows for years have normalized injustice. Rashad Robinson is the executive director of Color of Change, an activist group which is leading the charge. And he points out that TV dramas routinely buy into the trope of the bad apple cop, but almost never go further. Uh, They oftentimes show a world where black and brown people exist, but racism, and particularly structural racism, doesn't exist at all. Reality shows have so far been the easiest targets. Cops has been canceled after three decades of wild success. Sit down! Sit down! And furious complaints about glorification of police violence. Now Live PD has also been pulled off the air to the surprise and dismay of the host. I'm disappointed. I'm frustrated. I, I fought very hard to try to keep the show uh, on the air. I thought there was a way to, to have a, a national discussion on the show about policing. Not likely, according to Color of Change, which says crime television encourages the public to accept the norms of over-policing and excessive force and reject reform while supporting the exact behavior that destroys the lives of black people. And in the highly popular and lucrative world of police shows, they suggest that goes all the way down to kids' programs like Paw Patrol. I can't trust you right now. But do these made-up stories really make a difference? Consider this. A 2015 study found viewers of crime dramas are more likely to believe the police are successful at lowering crime, use force only when necessary, and that misconduct does not typically lead to false confessions. What's more, that study found when police do use excessive force, it is most often portrayed to viewers as not only necessary, but also effective. Jake? All right, Tom Foreman, thanks. And thank you for watching. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 
and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.